Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Christian Sager. We're going to kick off here with a quote from the late, great Carl Sagan to sort of set the tone for this episode. We were wanderers from the beginning, from 99.9% of the tenure of humans on Earth. We were hunters and foragers, wandering on the savannas and the steppes. Even after 400 generations in villages and cities, we still remember. The open road still calls like an almost forgotten song of childhood. We invest far off places with a certain romance. The appeal, I suspect, has been meticulously crafted by natural selection as an essential element in our long-term survival. That was a killer, Carl Sagan. Uh, it was all right. Like I say, I think uh, I think uh, uh, Chuck has the best one in the House of Forks office. Yes, I, <laughs> I, I like that. I was, I've been sitting here giggling the whole time, <laughs> trying not to laugh into the microphone. So that's an appropriate quote for us to start this episode with because we are going to be talking today about all, well, not all, but various anti-space exploration movements, whether they be religious, political, economic, uh, there's, there's a lot Farcical, of them. Farcical, Farcical, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it turns out there's quite a bit of them, and, uh, you know, I don't think we'd classify Carl Sagan as being among them, obviously. No, but he kind of sets the stage, I think, by, like, that, that's a quote from him that, that kind of captures the overall optimism for space and enthusiasm yeah. for space that, you know, I want to definitely get out there for my own part. I'm, I am definitely a space optimist, a space enthusiast. Yeah. I think there are several key arguments for Space exploration and our investment in space exploration. Yeah. I mean, namely, uh, you know, pushing the technology, ensuring the long-term survival of the human race, and giving us the ability to even protect the planet. Like in the in movies, as I've said before, saving the world is an everyday occurrence for heroes. Right. Yeah. But to actually save the world, our ability to uh, protect the planet from near-Earth uh, objects, from, you know, mm-hmm. meteorites, comets, etc. Like, that is as close as we can realistically get to saving the planet in a short-term, tangible way against mass extinctions. I think if you had asked me before we did all the research for this episode, I would have said something similar. Mm-hmm. And now... I'm on the fence. <laughs> uh, and th- which is sad to me because, you know, personal anecdote, like, I grew up as a little kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. That was like my thing as a yeah. little kid. And my parents bought me all those books of like, you know, those like giant, like, uh, um, fold out books of like what the interior of the space shuttle looks like or like how to become an astronaut, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and I remember very specifically being a kindergartner in the classroom, I, I was in New Hampshire at the time when the Challenger exploded. Oh, yeah. And I Krista McAuliffe was a New Hampshire teacher that was aboard the Challenger. And so at the time, it was, you know, a really big deal. It was super upsetting. and But I was still, like, so into the whole astronaut thing. Uh, and now look at me. Now I, you know, I, I talk about science on podcasts and write horror stories about demons. I, I don't know if I ever achieved my dreams. You rarely go into space at all. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's few and far between. I got to talk to, uh, Elon Musk and, uh, <laughs> Richard Branson about that. But yeah, I don't know. Like reading all of this information, I got to say there are some compelling arguments against it too. I, I would agree. And, you know, I think 
the important thing about this, because some of you might be listening and you're, you're thinking, you're like me, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm already 100% aboard space yeah. question. I, yeah. I'm not really interested in the counter arguments, but I think it's, it's healthy to explore the arguments against the things that we value. Yeah. Because, hey, that gives you a chance to, you know, hold on a little tighter to the things you do believe in, question the things you believe in, and, uh, you know, maybe end up with a more balanced perspective. I agree. And after, you know, going through this, what we're going to present to you today, I can tell you that there there are definitely, like, uh, like weak points in the armor of both of the arguments that sort of make you go, okay, like, maybe we could refine this here or there. Like, let's... Let's really nail down why we're going into space. And then, like, for some of the arguments against it, too, like, they need to be refined as well. You know, it's a little little loose sometimes, especially, like, so the the one that really got us, got the ball rolling for us on this was uh, an article that we're going to talk about at the end of the podcast that is called The Manifesto from the Committee to Abolish Outer Space. And it reads like a total, like, farcical, datist sort of, I don't know, uh, anti-capitalist manifesto uh-huh. sort of joke from the 1970s, right? Um, but there is, some, like, if you read real deeply on it, there is some logic between the lines. But yeah, you know, I thought it was worth reading through to promote discussion. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's what this is ultimately all about. We're, we're going to provide you with some arguments. Uh, you take those, combine them with what you already know, what you already believe, and then you can give us feedback on how that may have changed uh, the, your viewpoint, how that caused you to double down on your viewpoint, etc. So before we dive into the various sort of categories of anti-space arguments, there was one article that I read that I'd like to use as like a cap-off for us to start with. And this was written in 1997 by a guy named Gary Westfall, and it's called The Case Against Space. Uh, and it's in it's, it's actually in a science fiction journal called Science Fiction Studies. Uh, it, it was issue 72, if you want to go look it up. Um, and he basically says, look, like, I'm part of the sci-fi community. I love science fiction. I'm a science fiction writer. I teach science fiction. Uh, and I have been in love with the idea of going to space for decades now. But lately, like, my enthusiasm for it has waned. Uh, and he says... There have been different supportive arguments for space travel in recent era, eras, right? So you sort of break it down from the 50s and 60s to the 70s and 80s and then up to his point in the 90s. And I think as we go on today, we'll see some more in the, the aughts and the teens that we're existing in now. Mm-hmm. But uh, he said the 50s and the 60s, they were all philosophical arguments, right? Humanity must venture into and occupy outer space so that we can fulfill our inherent drive for exploration and inhabit unknown realms. Not Very, because it is easy, but because it is hard. Ex- you really should exactly. be doing that. You get the Boston Oh, uh, yeah. Well, uh, John... Kennedy didn't have a Boston accent. He had a he had a Kennedy accent. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, but I, I can try. I, you know what? No, I'm not going to do a <laughs> Kennedy person. I could do his brother. Uh, era, I, I had a bad ice cube. <laughs> Anyways, okay. Uh, but to continue on, this is basically like the Star Trek argument, right? Like, right. like a new life, new civilizations, yada yada. Yeah, it's uh, kind of a manifest destiny kind of a scenario. Yeah, yeah, which is a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, in short, he says, this is his exact qu- quote, in short, the history of our species powerfully suggests that progress 
progress will come from continued stable life on Earth and that a vast new program of travel into space will lead to a new period of human stagnation. And interestingly enough, he then quotes the exact quote that you put above from Carl Sagan. Then he says, okay, then in the 70s and 80s, we shifted, right? Because the whole philosophical thing wasn't really working out anymore. And it became a practical economic argument. And it was something like this, that outer space will solve our many problems, uh, the ones that are confronting us here on Earth, and that people will step forward to solve these problems, and we're going to make a lot of money doing it. Yeah, it's kind of a, an, an industrial, uh, trickle-down economics kind of view, with yep. sort of Velcro as the star, right? Yeah. Look at this. We exactly. have Velcro because of space, and isn't your life better because of Velcro? Wow, man, Velcro is perfect. Yeah, I forgot <laughs> all about that. Uh <laughs> I'm going to like, it's just going to be us thinking about like all the like space stuff from our childhood, like yeah. Velcro, Tang, and like uh, freeze dried ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. Supposed <laughs> space ice cream. Yeah. Um, but here's his quote about that one. He says, thus, when people were unmoved by calls to fulfill the basic destiny of humanity, which is the exploration one, it was hoped that the magnetic allure of the dollar sign would draw them into the space camp. And they were talking about everything from gathering free energy from the sun to mining key metals on the moon, building space factories that would make big money developing and selling life-saving medicine and devices. And that is something that's going to come up later in this podcast as well. Then in the 90s, we switched again, right? And this is what I like to call the Armageddon argument, which yeah. is basically the movie Armageddon. Uh, we need to go into space for defensive reasons and for prevention. We need to make sure a massive asteroid doesn't strike Earth and kill all of us. Uh, or, even better, we move into space, the asteroid can hit Earth and destroy it, but doesn't matter because we've colonized other planets. Right. And, and I, and I, that's one that I especially think is still a very compelling argument. It's yeah. a, it's a big picture <clears throat> argument. And that's one of the things ab- about any of this. Cause when you're trying to, when you're looking at space, you're talking about, you're talking about space exploration, you're talking about a massive mega project. And you get, they have all these different ideas of what it means, what the benefits are, what are the short term versus the long term, and what does it mean to, to see this as an extension of culture? Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. And so, like I said, like, I, I guess what I'm looking for is by the end of this podcast that I'll be able to be convinced back to my, uh, five year old self who was enamored with the idea of being an astronaut. But, uh, Westfall basically uses the rest of his, this article to make arguments against those three cases. Um, and he, he basically finds that there's no compelling immediate reason why we should uh, accelerate our space programs. He says, yeah, sure, it would be fine for us to go into outer space, but we've got what, much more pressing issues to deal with here on Earth. All right, so let's segue from that into... And this was brand new to me. You educated me on this for uh, for this episode that there are religious reasons not to go to space. Yeah, or at least the case has been made. Um, and granted, you you don't see as much of this anymore, at least in mainstream uh, arguments. But uh, but it's still pretty interesting. I'm, I've been long fascinated by uh, the, by space religion and the idea of like yeah. what happens to our beliefs 
when we actually take them into space. Oh yeah. Or just what do we? T- what happens when we take old uh, beliefs, essentially old cosmologies, maybe even like Babylonian cosmologies, and we try to hold on to those sometimes without without daring to tinker with them yeah. in an age of modern cosmological understanding. Very Jodorowsky. Yeah. Like that, yeah. that, that's like a big theme of his in uh what is it Meta Barons and that mm-hmm. that universe that he sort of created that, around that. That is a wild universe. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so there are various examples of this. Um, you know, there's some religions, uh, Hinduism instantly comes to mind, that have displayed an amazing ability to adapt supernatural cosmologies to agree with new information on the nature of the universe. Um, but other examples stand out to exemplify religions, uh, sometimes unflinching refusal to change in the face of scientific advancement, geocentricism. You know, there's no way anything but the earth can be the center right. of creation. Uh, and speaking of creation, creationism. Yeah. Uh, there's no, there's no way that this, uh, that any of this scientific data and these, uh, these scientific theories about, uh, the origin of species can be any different from this ancient text. Uh, that I still hold. Right. Why bother to go looking? We know we, we have the, the Gnosticism here already. Right. Yeah. So of course, so it's not that all that surprising that uh, certain religious groups or certain religious individuals have spoken out to varying degrees against space exploration and space travel or, or raised some very particular um, religious questions about it. Um, one that I found very thought provoking uh, occurred uh, in 2012. And this, uh, this came from the General Authority of Islamic Affairs and Endowments Fatwa Committee. Uh, and, and I do want to, to, uh, um, to clarify that this is, uh, this is just one single United Arab Emirates committee. Yeah. Um, they were not, they're not speaking, they're not, they're not speaking, speaking for all of Islam. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is just one committee speaking out here. But, uh, they were mainly interested with what a one-way mission to Mars would mean, uh, from an Islamic perspective. So this is, of course, the whole idea. The first settlers to Mars are essentially on a suicide mission. Yeah. Well, does that constitute suicide? And if so, uh, does uh, the Quran speak out against it when it says, do not kill yourselves or one another? Indeed, uh, Allah is to you ever merciful. Sure. Okay. And they were arguing that, yeah, Muslims should not go on this uh, journey. But the but the even more remarkable uh, part of this was, uh, and this was brought up, uh, is the notion that some Muslims might take the trip to Mars in order to quote escape punishment or standing before Almighty Allah for judgment. That I don't quite understand, but I guess like I'm also not like an Islamic scholar, but I would assume that even if they died on the mission to Mars, they would still. Uh, face judgment from Allah well, in the afterlife. That that's where it gets crazy, right? Because um, if you if you leave Earth, does that mean you are leaving God's domain? Is each mm. God is God only uh, oh, a lord wow. over a single planet? Um, I think the yeah. most would argue that that a that a modern depiction of God is a God of of all creation. Sure, yeah. And therefore, right. if you if you tick him off on one world, you can't just go to the next and claim immunity. Um, and I think that was the the idea that uh, that won out here. But it's so much science fiction spins off of this very simple idea yeah. that we're getting into today of should we or shouldn't we go into space? You know, like immediately thinking of you and I were just talking about this book the other day, uh, Mary Doria Russell's book, The Sparrow. Yeah, I've not read it, but it's been on my to read list for yeah. a while. Really fascinating sci fi book about you know the idea of. Uh, 
the future sending Catholic Jesuit priests along with a team to a new planet where they found alien life so that they can be missionaries, basically, Mm -hmm. and teach them about the Catholic faith. Uh, and of course everything goes horribly awry, but it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's also sort of an argument or it ends up sort of being an argument for not doing such a thing. (laughs) Well, um, we'll get to Catholics in a minute, but my, my next example comes from uh, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which, uh, you know, a lot of people might not think that uh, Mormons are going to really come up when we talk about space ready religions. Yeah. But as a relative newcomer to the religious uh, world marketplace, uh, they, they were really preloaded for the space age from the beginning. As uh, pointed out by um, Roger D. Lanius, uh, curator of the Smithsonian's planetary exploration programs in his paper, A Western Mormon in Washington, D.C., uh, you have a couple of key attributes uh, to the uh, Mormon faith that, uh, that make it perfect for space. Mm-hmm. It's grounded in frontier religion. Kind of getting back to that spirit that uh, that's, that 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 quote from Sagan captured, yeah. Uh, and uh, and so you see uh, you see this idea that oh you're going to push the frontier, uh, not not only the frontiers on Earth, but you're going to f- push the frontiers in space as well. Yeah, and that was primarily through a guy named Dr. James C. Fletcher, who I believe was Mormon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, was. he was also NASA's administrator from 1971 to 1977, and then again from 1986 to 1989. Uh, very influential on the space shuttle program and other space exploration research. Yeah, he was big into SETI as well. Yeah, and he considered all of this, uh, you know, part of his Mormon faith that he mm-hmm. should push these ideas because Mormon cosmology also involves a universe full of worlds without number uh, that are inhabited by intelligent beings. So, in other words. Earthlings are not the only creatures in Mormon cosmology. It, right. it, it, it comes preloaded with the idea that, yes, there are other worlds under God's domain uh, that are also liberated by the same Savior, mm-hmm. and uh, they have they have people on them or something like people, you know? Yeah. Um, so you don't have to worry about discovering alien life and having as much of a uh, you know, a, a religious, um, you know, apocalypse in the mind. So the opposite uh, version of this in like sci-fi fantasy type stuff, I, I have to, I, I don't know why, but this is just immediately popping to my head. There's this recent storyline in the Thor comic books yeah. where um, Thor realizes that like every planet with sentient life has its own pantheon of gods, mm-hmm. right? And so like he's part of the Norris pantheon of gods, but he flies into space and he goes to another planet and it turns out like this planet had its own pantheon but somebody had like been murdering all of their deities uh so thor takes it upon himself to also become their new deity you know uh it's just interesting like this is just like amazing springboard for fertile imaginative ideas for science fiction yeah indeed it is now it's interesting with with thor of course because he's a part of a a pantheon of gods as opposed to a a monotheistic uh, model yeah Um, which is mainly what we're talking about here yeah both the the Islamic and, and Mormon examples. Now, uh, to return to um, the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, not everyone in the history of the church has been super on board with space uh, exploration. In 1957, just a few short years before the first human ventured into space, prominent Mormon Joseph Fielding Smith remarked that, quote, 
It is doubtful that man will ever be permitted to make any instrument or ship to travel through space and visit the moon or any distinct planet. Hmm. And then in 1961, the same year that cosmonaut Yuri Gargan uh, made history by being the first man in space, uh, Smith uh, further stated, we will never get a man into space. This is, of course, before, <laughs> before yeah. Yuri went up. Whoops. Um, <laughs> we will never get a man into space. The Earth is man's sphere, and it was never intended that he should get away from it. The moon is a superior planet to the Earth, and it was never in- intended that men should go there. You can write it down in your books that this will never happen. Well, boy, was he wrong. Yeah. Or or maybe it's all been a lie, right? It's like the, the shine. I'm surprised nothing came up about the shining conspiracy and the idea that we faked the moon landing. I think that that plays into some of the attitudes we'll get at, you know, yeah. sort of the the the, the 19 some of the, the early skepticisms that we could do it. And then yeah. when we did do it, yeah. uh you had to double down on your beliefs and say, well, no way that we actually did. I should probably explain what I mean. I just threw that out there like that's common knowledge or whatever. This mm-hmm. is more along the lines of our uh, our colleagues over at uh, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. But So the idea, the, the, the idea goes like this. That well, it should be noted this is a... This is a fake conspiracy theory. Yeah, this yeah. is a created conspiracy theory <laughs> that, that merely uh, but people, has some fascinating... Uh, the people got really into it. You've yeah, seen Route I've, written, I've written about right? it, yeah. yeah. So like, uh, the, the idea goes that uh, the moon landing and all of our uh, space exploration has been faked. Uh, and in particular, the moon landing was shot and faked by Stanley Kubrick. And subsequently, The Shining is a metaphorical, thematic apology mm-hmm. uh, to his wife, I think, for committing the act of lying to the uh, public about what happened yeah. on the moon. Yeah, it's 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 elaborate, and, in, and it's such a neatly constructed, elaborate conspiracy theory that, yeah. that you can't help but find it uh, find it fascinating. Yeah. Um, but. Doubting the moon landing, that of course is a very real thing. Sure. And, uh, and I do think that that, that spirit is echoed in some of the stuff we're going to discuss here in a bit. Now I do want to mention one more thing about Joseph Fielding Smith, and that is that, uh, later on his, um, his grandson writing about, um, about all of this, uh, he, uh, he made a case that, that one of the, the points, uh, that Smith was making was that if you went to another world, you yeah. would discover that they had the same savior, they had the same God, and therefore, you wouldn't have to have faith anymore that 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 by visiting another planet you could confirm the existence oh. of god and therefore remove the importance for faith in the human experience um okay <laughs> i don't like just taking that from like a sort of like debate logical perspective i don't know that i necessarily agree yeah that just because another species evolved to have a monotheistic religion that that confirms the existence of a god. Hmm, I don't know. I'd have to hear more. From, yeah, it, it's from an inter- it's an interesting idea, yeah. and I imagine it would require a deeper discussion yeah. of Mormon theology. I guess, um, uh, as our colleague uh, Holly Fry often says, I require more data. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but I do I do find um, the Mormon faith very interesting in its in its space ready nature. Uh, yeah. Though, as we've explored here, that that still doesn't mean you're going to not encounter some uh, some problems when you bring your faith into an everly, ever increasingly space age. Oh yeah, yeah. Sir. Now, some other examples here. Uh, scientist uh, David Rittenhouse insisted back in 1775 that, quote, the doctrine of a plurality of worlds is inseparable from the principles of astronomy, but this doctrine is still thought by some pious persons to militate against the truths asserted by the Christian religion. 
Uh, a 2014 University of Dayton study found that evangelical Protestants are much sure Jesus will return in the next 40 years than that humans will make significant strides in space exploration. Huh. That seems to me to be one of those things that's cyclical, is that like every generation feels like they're just on the cusp of revelations or, or yeah. whatever kind of end of the world apocryphal story occurring. Yeah, and I mean, that's just, yeah, I think the nature of any kind of, uh, you know, very evangelical or very fundamentalist uh, movement is sure. they're going to be more more focused on uh, on the short term and the religious version mm-hmm. of the world, if not the next life. I don't necessarily have any problem with that so long as, like, like you said, like they're focusing on like earthly problems, you know, taking care of earthly problems yeah, rather than and, investing in space exploration. Yeah, and certainly that ties into some of the, the secular arguments we're going to explore in yes, a bit. Yeah. Um, this particular study was carried out by um, University of Dayton political science assistant uh, professor Joshua Ambro- Ambrosius, who used data from the general social survey and three Pew surveys to compare knowledge, interest, and support for space exploration among Catholics, evangelicals, mainline Protestants, Jews, Eastern religions, and agnostics. Gnostics. Okay. And the key findings were that that were as follows. Evangelicals who account for one quarter of the US population are the least knowledgeable, interested, and supportive of space exploration. Oh, interesting. Jews and members of Eastern traditions are more attentive and supportive. Uh also, no matter where you're talking about, uh clerical support is important. So evangelicals, for instance, were twice as likely to recognize the benefits of space exploration if their pastors speak positively about science. Okay, sure. And um, and of all the Christian faiths, uh, Catholics, uh, they seem to have the the, mo- the most openness. Really? Yeah, and certainly so the they've Vat- all read the Sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the Vatican has uh, had they have an astronomer. They have yeah. they have an interest yeah. in space. They occasionally have meetings where they discuss, hey, what happens when we speak to speak with aliens? So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I would assume that you would be like adapting the same kind of methodologies that you use for missionary work in other countries in the same way as you would for first contact. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and, and if someone wanted to, to get kind of critical, and certainly this is a, a critical episode, you might say that uh, the Catholic Church historically uh, is interested in large mega projects with, with dubious yeah. price tags and questionable benefits for the, the the masses. Right. Well, they've certainly got the pocketbook capable of doing it. But yeah, I mean, I think that that was sort of the argument of the sparrow was that like in the future governments were wouldn't be able to fund such a thing so they had to turn to the catholic church in order for the funding subsequently leading to jesuit missionaries being included on every mission yeah so i guess basically you can you can boil all of this down by saying that when you have a supernatural worldview even if you have just like a basic mythological background yeah. to your worldview um there's a there's a potential risk to it in taking your culture into space, uh, taking your mindset into a space age. And so, therefore, there's going to be a certain amount of resistance. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into some economics. All right, we're back. We're going to discuss uh, some economic anti-space arguments. All right, so... 
as we've talked about on the show many times before, pretty much any time we talk about space, but I, I'm thinking of like our Rods from God episodes, space mirrors, like any time we talk about launching something into space, it is super expensive, right? That's right. I mean, some of the, 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 the figures here are just are truly astronomical. Um, I'm going to lay no out pun a, intended. Yeah, I'm going to lay out a few here, and these came from an article um, uh, from the Space Review. First of all, Apollo program. This was, of course, one of the big ones, um, and uh, went for 15 years, 1959, 1973. It cost 20.4 billion, and uh, if we simply added uh, yearly spending uh, all up, we're, we were, to, we're to looking at around 109 billion in modern currency. Uh, that brings to, breaks down to 9.9 billion per flight, with each lunar landing costing 18 billion dollars. Uh, Skylab, uh, the Skylab space station program, yeah. that cost uh, 2.2 billion in in the money of the time. That would be uh, 10 billion in 2010 dollars, and and uh, that was across its nine year existence, 1966 through 1974. Meanwhile, the space shuttle program cost uh, roughly 198.6 billion in 2010 dollars. Um, the, a lot of the sources I was looking at this came from a 2010 article, so you can you know you can yeah. boost that those prices a little bit in your head. I noticed that as well, though, doing the research that a, a lot of this. I think it takes time to gather the, yeah. the, these this information, so we don't have a lot of data that's like right up to like you know June of 2016. Right now. The ISS is an entirely different scenario yeah. uh, to to, uh, to look at. NASA may have spent the equivalent of seventy two point four billion on the ISS as of two thousand ten. Though I've also read other accounts, including some more recent ones, that argue that the station's true cost is somewhere between a hundred and one hundred and fifty billion dollars. Or I've also read accounts that make an argument that it's just kind of difficult to calculate. It might be incalculable. Wow. Yeah, I think I have notes in, in here later on about the ISS costs. But so we'll at the when we get to those, we can compare and contrast. But that sounds right to me. I mean, it was again, no pun intended, astronomically yeah. expensive. So Westfall, the guy I brought up at the beginning, he uh, comes to the economic argument. Now, remember, this is the argument that he said was primarily made in the 70s and 80s, right? Mm-hmm. That it's worth the investment because we're going to make all this money, man, like all these technologies that we create that we'll bring back to Earth. It's going to be totally worth it. Uh, and he says... Yeah, but we observe a cycle in this literature, right? That they, first they announce that someone has developed the quote, perfect plan for space exploration, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a new rocket ship or something that's cheaply ineffective. Uh, or then other people start to examine this perfect plan and they find a few little problems. They go, well, wait a minute, that rocket ship actually cost 50 times what you, you announced originally, right? Uh, and then they find, oh, there's a 25 percent rate of failure. Uh, maybe we shouldn't do this yet. Uh, or maybe this thing's going to crash and scatter radioactive dust all over Australia or something like that, <laughs> right? Um, and so as these objections start to mount, the people who proposed it in the first place stop talking about it, and then they immediately shift to another new perfect plan that they talk about. So this is the cycle of uh, that he accounts for and argues against that you see in these economic arguments that, you know, you, that like I'm thinking right now of like uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX, right? Like that's probably the current one that we're seeing. Where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, we can totally do this. We're gonna land this. What's the most recent thing? Like they landed 
uh, or a space rocket on a platform in the middle of the ocean, like what, like a month or two ago? Yeah, they were talking about the, the whole Dragon program. I think it's Dragon yeah. 2 at this point. I, I wrote something about it for uh, How Stuff Works Now. Uh, and it's pretty impressive technology. Yeah. But yeah, the, this is the latest where, where the, you know, the, the proponents of this are saying, this is, this is how we're getting to Mars. This is the, this is the vehicle. Yeah. And it just takes further development to get it where we need it. To so go. it's the new perfect plan that we're working on. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> Semi-perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is the new perfect plan. Now, some additional uh, anti-space arguments were presented in Engineering and Technology magazine back in 2011 by Cornish explorer Robin Hanbury Tennyson. Um, and he was taking the, the anti-space argument in a pro-con article that was, uh, that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it was kind of cool. They like laid them out like right next to each other, the, the pro and the con argument. And at the bottom, it was sort of like, so where, how have you been convinced? Yeah, you know? which one, which one do you side with? Mm-hmm. So he, uh, he, a couple of quotes here that I have to read. He says, the amount of money being spent on space research is in the billions, and it has achieved extraordinarily little except for a bit of improved technology, which would probably have come about anyway by other means. Uh, I guess he means that we could have had Velcro without going into space. Right, but. yeah. We probably could have built Velcro without also going into space. Yeah. Meanwhile, he says, we uh, we have no shortage of crises here on Earth, economic, environmental. We've got deforestation. We've got global climate change going on. Uh, he says we should be spending these colossal sums of money on sustainability and management of the human population. He said, quote, if you put the money that is wasted in, in space into the hands of climatologists, you could have lasting benefits for mankind. I don't think space science is bad science. I just think it's a waste of time. Yeah, and Hanbury Tennyson's argument is really him considering space research a gross waste of time, money, and effort that could be used to do other things like manage our own planet, which, you know, that's something that we we, we already saw in the religious arguments. Now it's popping up again in the, the economic ones. He says, this is interesting because I had not heard this before, and it's it, it sounds a little pseudo-y to me, but, mm-hmm. but we'll see what you and the listeners think. He says that all civilizations collapse after 500 years and that this is usually because of their greed to development and leads to the extinction of their culture. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I, I mean, okay, sure. Let's, for the sake of this argument, say that that's true. Um, and that our ambitions towards space are a sign of our own eventual collapse, that we're, we're closing in on the end of our, our time. Well, yeah, I mean, I've certainly read some uh, material about the, you know, collapse of civilizations, and yeah. I don't think the 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 500 year uh, estimate is that far off. And that being said, a collapsing civilization doesn't mean now what it used to mean. Like, right? Like used to it meant uh, yeah. some another army is going to rise up and defeat you, and they, they might salt the earth. And you just where leave an empty was. city behind. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Whereas now we, we sort of just have like. Uh, fallen empires, right? Right. Yeah. But then, but then space itself is, I mean, granted, there are a, a very few major players in the game, but it is an international game with newer players oh, yeah. making strides more and more every day. And that's part of the problem, as some people argue, too. Mm-hmm. Bo- both, actually, they argue that it's part of the problem and what makes it good. Uh, and we'll get into that later as well. The, the last thing that he says here is because of, and this is another thing that comes up in both sides of the argument, mm-hmm. because of population issues, basically because like there's too many people on Earth, we should instead concentrate uh, 
all, all these funds that we're throwing into space exploration, into food production and rainmaking technology. I wonder what he would have thought of Willem Reich in his Cloudbusters. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but yeah, so the other, the other side to that argument, as we'll see, is basically we should go into space because there's a population problem so we can get all of these people off of Earth and colonize other planets. And take the resources from those planets. Yeah, it's it, like it de- depends on how optimistic your view of uh, humanity's future in space happens to be. <laughs> right. Uh, if you think we can create, um, you know, arcs to send off to uh, other planets, uh, or if you think that is just so far off uh, that it's it's not even a remotely an answer to even our even our longer term problems. So good old uh, stuff to blow your mind. Regular Richard Feynman shows up in this literature too, oh, yeah. huh? We, who who we have infamously talked about before in his bathtub adventures or his uh, sorry hot tub adventures, criticizing um, <laughs> reflexology. Yeah. What episode was that on? I'm trying to remember now. Was it on oh. uh, cargo cult science? Yes, it was yeah. because he coined the term cargo cult science. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, his his major thing is that uh, human space travel in partic- in particular has never achieved any major scientific breakthroughs, or had not, of course, during his lifetime. Yeah, that sounds about right for Feynman, though, and his mm-hmm. like kind of angle of cr- criticism of how science is approached. But you know, I was with him on the cargo cult science thing. Well, you know, this this is one of those arguments that I often find pretty compelling, and I've heard others make it as well. And especially as the technology has advances, we've gotten to a point where the near future technology is uh you know perhaps even even further along than than Feynman could have possibly imagined right you know when we're yeah. talking about our ability to engage with VR increased communication between uh between robots i mean uh, joe and i did a recent episode talking about some of the plans for exploring the the jovian moons yeah and so many of those are predicated on the use of probes that are then controlled by this uh particular communication hub that's, that's sending information back to us yeah. and it does make you raise the question do we need to engage in the costly, dangerous endeavor of sending a human out there for largely symbolic reasons? Yeah. Like a human can set in a steel container here on Earth and watch this on a screen, or we can take him or her and put them in a enclosed steel box to watch it on a sc- screen, um, you know, it's kind of like saying, like, why do I need to go to China? I can walk a, watch a documentary about it. Well, except you can go to China. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, but no, but no, that's a, that's a good counter argument as well. It's like, and it, it gets back to some the people thing. make that argument when you say, yeah. why haven't you, like, for, uh, some Americans, I, like, I, I've certainly met people before who go, why do you travel so much? I'm like, oh, you know, you get to see new sites and learn about new people and it expands your ideas about the world. And they're like, hey, I can, I can get all that stuff watching the travel channel. Yeah, but you can't catch a weird flu watching the travel right. channel. And that's part of my travel experience. If I don't come back with some sort of weird bug, then I, I know I didn't actually explore. So a really grounded, sort of very like logical look at uh, the economic argument was conducted actually in 2013 by the U.S. Congressional Budget Office. Uh, and they performed what they say is a nonpartisan analysis for Congress to review the economic benefits of what we would get out of eliminating the space program. And this would be from the years 2014 to 2023. The proposal 
is specifically to terminate human space exploration. So it's important to say that because, like, as Robert was just saying, we can send up uh, unmanned probes and stuff like that, right? Like, we're using radio waves right now to yeah. map Jupiter in particular so we can see sort of what the geography of the planet is like underneath all those spots. Yeah, I mean, that's the other... I mean, even getting beyond probes uh, and robots, I mean, just pure sensors, pure telescope technology, yeah. like... The human eye is not gonna is not gonna be able to to glimpse these things. We need the te- we need the eye of technology to glimpse and understand these things. That's the that's the lens that's important. So the Congressional Budget Office says, look, this proposal would allow NASA to continue its aeronautics and its robotics missions. You know, we're not cutting that out. Just the human stuff. Now, they found by crunching the numbers that this would save $73 billion uh, in that time span from 2014 to 2023. They argue that because most space missions use electronics and information technology, that there's no need to send humans into space because the instruments don't need the people there to operate them. And by using, quote, robots, I think robots is a bit of a strong term here, <laughs> but uh, that won't put human life in danger either, right? Uh, and it would actually decrease the cost because we make the missions one way. We don't have to figure out a way to bring them back and bring them back safely, and that's a huge cost. Yeah, a one-way mission to Mars uh, isn't nearly as uh, scary a thing when it's just a robot. Yeah. Robot Matt Damon. So, <laughs> yeah, robot Matt Damon. <laughs> He's going to science the beep out of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's actually a pretty, uh, you know, when you think about that movie, which was great. Uh-huh. Like most, I don't mean the whole thing, the, all the problems depend on the fact that you sent a human there yeah. and then there's all of this, you know, symbolic power in sending him there and all this additional uh, cost in keeping him alive there and then in getting him back. Whereas it's just a robot, you just write it off like any other robot we've sent out into space. Yeah, yeah, which some people argue that's a problem, too, especially along the sort of pollution slash anti-capitalist lines. But uh, anyways, to finish it off, this congressional uh, article, they specifically added, look, there's also arguments against this, too, and here's what they are, that eliminating human spaceflight would end the progress that's necessary to send humans to Mars, leading right into that Martian uh, analogy, and uh, also that there is possibly a scientific advantage to having human beings on the ISS to conduct experiments in microgravity. That's true. That's a good one. You, we kind of it's easy to forget ISS and uh, and all the work that goes on there yeah. when we start thinking about these more futuristic visions of sending humans to other planets. Now, on the other hand, in 2008, Freakonomics hosted a uh, basically like a roundtable mm-hmm. of a bunch of uh, space exploration experts with the theme is space exploration worth the cost and i'm not going to break it down by like each one you can go look at it yourself it's pretty interesting but uh they pretty much came down totally in favor of space exploration and their reasons were that space exploration stimulates children to enter into stem fields uh the returns on investments generate royalties from patents and licenses but what's interesting is that all that money goes back into the U.S. Treasury instead of into NASA. So some of them were arguing, hey, you know, if you made it so that uh, the, the the money that's generated from the technology that's invented by NASA goes back into NASA, NASA will be self-funding then. Hmm. Uh, and 
Also, this was a weird argument, I thought. Uh, one guy said, well, we spend $154 billion a year in the United States on alcohol, so why shouldn't we spend that kind of money on going into space? See, and this is this is where we get into an argument we see with science a lot. That sounds uh, to me like the kind of thing that I would see in Facebook comments. And then people will say, oh, but where is this lost flight? How come we can do yeah. this but we can't find that? Yeah. Uh, you know, the whole really... You, we can put a man on the moon. Why can't we achieve this thing in our culture, in our life, either scientifically or 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 non-scientific? Whatever is like a specific current event type crisis. Yeah, too, right. Curing cancer uh, mm-hmm. is another big one. How come? How, the argument is always like, oh, why, why aren't they curing cancer? And then, well, they can't cure cancer. They're, they're stopping they're, wildfires. In yeah, California. this is fluid dynamics. <laughs> yes, this is a different realm. And just because. Just because cancer research is hugely important and lives are are on the line, it doesn't mean that these other areas of scientific inquiry are not important. Right, right. Uh, they made many more arguments in favor of space. So I'm going to throw some of these down here, and then we'll keep those in mind as we continue on with the arguments against going into space. Uh, one is that it would, of course, allow us to establish human civilization on another world. We talked already about the new technologies, uh, but in particular, they gave us some examples saying we've developed a better understanding of osteoporosis and balance disorder as a result oh, yeah. of sending people into outer space. And we've built new medical devices such as digital mammography that generate wealth. Now, now again, like it's debatable, is that going to the Treasury? Is it going to NASA? Or is it going into private hands? Also, miniaturization of electronics devices for spaceflight led to our present-day computers and phones. Okay, so, so these are some tangible examples of that kind of trickle-down yeah. technology. Uh, that we were discussing earlier. Yep. The other argument economically that I thought was interesting was they said NASA's development in the South, meaning the South of uh, the United States, mm-hmm. by uh, establishing centers or, or spaceflight operations, uh, that those brought econo- economic development into areas that previously didn't have them, basically providing jobs. Yeah, specifically thinking of uh, Cape Canaveral in Florida and uh, Huntsville, Alabama. It's also the reason you have like five or six German restaurants in Huntsville, Alabama. It's like the mecca of German restaurants in the entire region. Oh, except for uh, what's what's the fake German town here in Georgia? Oh, uh, yeah. Helen. Helen. I think Helen only, <laughs> oh, that is, Helen is not a destination for us. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you're from the South, if you've ever been to Helen, Georgia, you know what we're talking about, but it's like this little, <laughs> like, touristy, fake German village. It's kind of bizarre. Yeah. They do have a good Thai restaurant there, though, by the way. <laughs> In the fake German town, there's yeah, a great Thai restaurant. Yeah. There's an excellent Thai restaurant there. Just, uh, FYI to, uh, local listeners. Other, other, uh, reasons why we, why we should go is, uh, this is a, an interesting terminology. It allows us to address global challenges with, quote, space solutions. And one of those is the international context. So it offers a venue for peaceful cooperation between nations. Uh, and that results in a foreign policy boost and prestige to those nations, right? Uh, and so the person who made this argument says that it justifies uh, the Cold War, basically, huh. uh, which, again, like like I said at the top, some of these arguments I, I find a little bit loose, like that that one's kind of strange to me. You end up kind of taking a it's, it, you end up taking an approach as if you're playing a game of civilization, right? Yeah, where you're you're thinking, oh, well, this brought up my uh, my techn- technology score, but then also it lowered the risk level. And it's just it gets 
it's helpful to take these these broad views, but it's also it it also creates its own problems of perspective. Yeah, I think so as well. Uh, another one is some and again sort of loose, right? But uh, well, of, you know, of course we should keep doing this and spending these billions of dollars because it will answer the "Are we alone?" question. Which sure it will, and that that would be fascinating. You know, that would be great headlines, right? But right. do we need to know "Are we alone?" more than we need to? I don't know. Feed the hungry. Yeah. Stuff like that is is sort of where the the economic argument gets tricky. It's also one of those things, um, not to be a, too much of a downer, but sometimes I think about that and I think, well, it would be great to know, but the answer can only mess us up. Yeah. You know, like yeah. if the answer is no, then oh, I feel so alone. If the answer is yes, well, then it's whoa. What does that mean for my sense of identity? What does that mean for my faith? And then, are they scary or not? Should I now just be petrified of the oh yeah the alien invasion? Right. Yeah, the the Independence Day version. Yeah. Um. And then there's this you know continual argument that we keep coming back to that explore, exploration is intrinsic to human nature. So of course we have to fulfill our human nature, right? Um. And whenever I hear that, I can't help but think of the Franklin expedition into uh, the Arctic as I did a lot of research into that for another project. And that was basically, you know, this is pre space age that, that was their outer space, like being able to traverse the Northwest passage. Uh, And they lost tons of lives and spent many, a lot of money. They still don't know what happened. Well, they, they sort of know what happened to the Franklin expedition, but you know, there's, there's many a horror story written about (laughs) the cannibalization that possibly went on on the icy wastes of the North, uh, purely so that we could fulfill this uh, need of human exploration. So there's that. Uh, now, one guy in particular, he says, quote, asking if space exploration with humans or robots or both is worth the effort is like questioning the value of Columbus's voyage to the New World in the 1490s. Now, what's interesting about that <laughs> is one of the people that we're going to talk about next actually makes that argument and says, yeah, that was a bad thing, too. Yeah, there are a lot of compelling arguments that that was, that was a bad thing. And, and it's kind of weird to say, oh, you can't doubt this because doubting that is like second-guessing something that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. I can't really – I can't change the, what happened with Columbus. It, you know, a lot of aspects of that scenario sucked, but, um, you know – I am in that flow of time. Uh, I'm not going to go back and kill Hitler. Yeah, I got to say, like a lot of these people in this Freakonomics roundtable, you know, it was uh, a couple of years ago now. So maybe their their arguments would be different. But uh, I admire their enthusiasm for space travel. But some of their arguments weren't very well thought out. Yeah, and I think part of it comes from, again, just going from the broad view to the smaller view and it, it ultimately being kind of its own uh, wicked problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, another thing I want to point out here before we take another break is that, uh, you know, looking back, it's easy to look back at the footage of um, of, of the, the original space race and think, yeah. well, everybody was behind it. Yeah, there was <laughs> yeah, just so right. much like political and public will that was devoted for it, of course you were able to pull off such a, a mega project. And of course, to a certain extent, that's true. We were, we were able to do that kind of things. Those beep. We were able to pull off landing humans on the moon because that political capital was there. However, uh, I found a couple of sources that really drive home the fact that, um, 
public opinion polls conducted during the Apollo missions, um, the voices of critics that we can look back on. Yeah. It, it shows that not everyone was really on, as on board as we sometimes like to think. Yeah, like I'm imagining like the Archie Bunkers of the world probably didn't like get as excited about uh, the, the, the mission to the moon as, yeah. as like maybe the rest of us. Yeah, and in fact, uh, some of this comes from space historian uh, Roger Linnaeus uh, of the National Air and Space Museum, who we mentioned earlier in that piece about Dr. James C. Fletcher. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, quote, polls do not support a contention that Americans embrace the lunar landing mission. Consistently through the 1960s, a majority of Americans did not believe Apollo was worth the cost. With the one exception to this poll, to this, a poll taken at the time of Apollo 11 lunar landing in July 1969. And, uh, consistently throughout the decade, 45 to 60 percent of Americans believed that the government was spending too much money on space, uh, indicative of a lack of commitment to the spaceflight agenda. Yeah, so that's sort of like our, uh, revisionist history, right? Especially through pop culture. Like, yeah, like, yeah now we've got movies with Tom Hanks where we sit around and celebrate how amazing our ingenuity was for uh, sending Apollo up there. Mm -hmm. But at the time, mm. yeah, yeah, indeed. And uh, as pointed out in an excellent Atlantic article by um, Alexis C. Madrigal that I I recommend anyone uh, check out. I'll include a link to it on the landing page for this episode. It was titled uh, Moondoggle, the Forgotten Opposition to the Apollo Program. Um, he says there was a fair amount of civil rights criticism of the space program. Huh, okay. So you had, uh, for instance, uh, in the in the, the musical uh, scene, you had the, the late great Gil Scott Heron, who died uh, in 2011. Mm. Uh, you may know him uh, for uh, the Revolution will not be tel- televised. Uh, Home is where the hatred is. A number of songs like this. Highly talented artist. Uh, he wrote a couple of songs that were critical of the program, most notably 1970s Whitey on the Moon, um, which is probably the most notable example. But the it, it kind of goes like this. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm just going to quote it. He says, uh, with all that money I made last year for Whitey on the Moon, how come there ain't no money here? Hmm, Whitey's on the Moon. You know, I just about had my fill of Whitey on the Moon. I think I'll, I'll send these dollar, these doctor bills, airmail special to Whitey on the Moon. Mm-hmm. And of course, what he's saying here is that we're spending all of this money on, well, on sending white people to the Moon on this yeah. space program that is not benefiting people who are suffering. It's not, and it's not benefiting, uh, uh, individuals who are still fighting for their own civil rights yeah. while all of this money is, is fighting to, to really, to, with, with hardly tangible benefits. Certainly not to the common man. Ray Bradbury has a story, oh, I can't remember the title of it, that's in The Illustrated Man, mm-hmm. that's, uh, along the lines oh, of yeah. this too. Yeah, where, where the premise is that, uh, African Americans have basically moved to Mars because civil rights issues on Earth were so horrific. And then white people on Earth had mined all the resources and were starving and they needed help. Huh. So they, uh, the, it, it's about like a rocket man coming to Mars. He lands on Mars and some of the people on Mars are like, why should we accept these people? Why should we help them? But ultimately the community comes together and says, of course, we're going to, we're going to take care huh. of you. So essentially Bradbury wrote an Afro futurist. Yeah. 
piece. That's interesting. Yeah, huh. yeah, it's an incredible story. Ah, I'll have to go. I'll go look that up because I, I I found Afro, I find Afrofuturism a very interesting area. Where yeah, you, you have this uh, convergence of of enthusiasm for space and science fiction, but also the civil rights movement. Yeah, there is stuff like that uh, even in like the old EC comics in the late fifties. Yeah. Uh, in fact, like one of the reasons this is an interesting little side note. One of the reasons why uh, horror comics uh, were banned in the 50s and why the comics code was created was because EC Comics had a story that was a sci-fi story where at the end of the story, the an astronaut takes off his helmet and it's a black man. And it's, you know, the, the, the people writing it were meant it to be a civil rights promotional story. Uh-huh. But the black man was sweating there was a bead of sweat dripping down his face in the panel, and the people who uh, were against the story at the time said that that was like too primal or something what? like oh. that, and that, that you know that the the comic book was pushing boundaries too far by showing the sensuality of the humanity of this astronaut. Huh? Yeah, that is fascinating. Yep. So hey, Gil Scott Heron wasn't alone. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, and certainly there were. Uh, the, yeah, it, it went beyond just uh, just you know, the work of mere artists. Um, in 1971, 200 black protesters marched on Cape Canaveral to protest the launch of Apollo 14. Uh, then civil rights uh, leader Hosea Williams, who of course we have. Uh, yeah, Street I live right off Atlanta. of Hosea Williams yeah. here in Atlanta. Yeah, he framed this as a protest against quote our nation's inability to choose humane priorities. Which gets down to the the economic argument again, right? Yeah. Like, is yeah. this truly a priority? Yeah. What's more important to us? Yeah. And cl- clearly, if you look at the way that the budget breaks down, war is tremendously more important. Oh to us. yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that is often well, used as an not argument. War, for Robert. Us. Defense. Yes. <laughs> but that's often used as an argument for space exploration. Is yes. that look? You're, if you spent just a fraction more of what you spend on uh, war in the Middle East yeah. on space exploration. Then we would ex- we would experience all of these tangible benefits as as opposed to just the mere tangible benefits of military research. Yeah, think about the Star Wars, and I'm not talking about the movie, the the Star Wars program mm-hmm. research done in the 80s. That's combining both worlds. It's, it's the space exploration world combined with militarization, which we talked about with the weapons in space episode. Yeah. Now that uh, that Alexis C. Madrigal uh, article that I mentioned, he he uh, spends a lot of time talking about the work of his uh, Israeli American sociologist. Uh, Amitali Etziani, uh, in his 64 book, The Moondoggle, Domestic and International Implications of the Space Race. And in this book, uh, Etzioni, uh, laid out, uh, scientific opposition to the space race as a cash and crash approach to science. And he argued that based on the opinions of various scientists that he spoke to, space should only be pursued in balance uh, with other scientific and technological pursuits and shouldn't be pursued in a manner that weakens other scientific endeavors. Okay. Uh, one of the facts that was cited here uh, in the book and then cited by Madrigal is that of every $3 spent on research and development in the United States in 1963, one went for defense one for space, and the remaining one for all other research purposes, including private industry and medical research. Huh. Uh, he also argued that the space program at the time functioned as something of a brain drain. So uh, you had the best and the brightest, yeah. and where are they drawn? They're drawn where the energy is, they're drawn where the money is, and that was the it's space like program. It's like Akademgorodok. Exactly, yeah, yeah. 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 And um, and it's also argued that while while the space program did create jobs, it did stimulate the economy. It mainly did so with a focus on highly skilled 
uh, position. Oh yeah, yeah, sure, right. Yeah, they're not. There's not that many jobs for uh, janitors at NASA necessarily as there are for for engineers with PhDs. So, how are we going to abolish outer space? Okay, so Sam Chris. Uh, I was unfamiliar with him. I learned, actually, it turned out I was familiar with him. I had read articles by him before, but I didn't realize who he was. Uh, he just, in February of this year, wrote a piece at the New Inquiry that I've already said is the manifesto of the Committee to Abolish Outer Space. I learned about it from, uh, uh, my patron saint for stuff to blow your mind, Warren Ellis's newsletter. He oh, included yeah. it in his newsletter. Um, Warren Ellis being a, a political science fiction writer, uh, mainly of comics, but also of prose. Uh, so Chris, from what I can gather, seems to be a writer who alternates between, I guess what I would call florid prose, satire, and nonfiction essays. And his big thing seems to be challenging what we assume to be authority figures in modern thought, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Slavoj Žižek, Richard Dawkins, Nate Silver, people like that. Uh, he's written for Wired, Slate, and Vice. This isn't just some like crazy guy off on his own blog, although he does have his own blog, and trying to read it is fairly impenetrable. <laughs> um, and I, I also recommend take a look at this guy's Twitter feed too, because it's it's also like pretty out there. Um, but this piece in particular, he argues that the promise of the beautiful journey to space is actually a political lie. It's an ant, and so he's making an anti-capitalist argument. Uh, and he says that this political lie is perpetuated by science communicators who pretend to love science. Ah, uh, yes. And what I wonder is if we would be included in there. Now, he does include some of our peers in there. Uh, in a, a separate piece, he expands on it in a Wired article against Neil deGrasse Tyson and IFL Science. He accuses them of, quote, making the universe boring, telling people things that they already know, and dispelling misconceptions that nobody actually holds. So I'd like to think that we were not guilty of those things, but hey, listeners, let us know. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like this is an area we could uh, we could really discuss at length another time, but yeah. there is this whole push and pull between science and public science, science mm-hmm. and you could I guess I've heard it called vulgar science. Uh Yeah, and we've ta- we talked about it in the Cargo Cults episode mm-hmm. and sort of in the Wicked Problems episode too that there is a somewhat like deification of quote-unquote science in today's pop culture news cycle. And space is kind of a shining gem in that tiara, right? It is space. You don't quite... It's it's essentially... Heaven. It's essentially the afterlife yeah. for the the, the the vulgar science. Why wouldn't uh, you cover it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, another quote he has here is he says, "Science here, meaning in these uh, situations of writing, has very little to do with the scientific method itself. It means ontological physicalism, not believing in quote our Lord Jesus Christ, hating the spectrally stupid, and more than anything, pretty pictures of nebula and tree frogs." So, okay, I, I sort of get where he's coming from here, but, you know, I'm often accused of being a curmudgeon. This guy really seems to be planting a flag in the yeah, ground. He is, he's being a bit of a hardcore guy. Yeah, but his manifesto, he says, look, space itself in the existence of life is actually vanishingly short, and we are all headed toward death because the universe is already unmaking itself. But in the meantime, here we are polluting space with all of our electronic debris and probes and what we refer to as space junk, right? <laughs> uh, and he says, 
If our exploration of space goes like our exploration of Earth has, then Mars will end up exploiting, we'll just end up exploiting Mars for resources, right? Uh, and there's a, there's an infamous book by Robert Zubrin, The Case for Mars, that is often cited as being like, yeah, this is, this is the go-to book of like, why we should, why we should get up there, why. He, Zubrin's a great, uh, advocate for Mars exploration. Yeah. I, I interviewed him, uh, several years back. Oh, did you? Yeah, and it's, he is, yeah, he's gung ho. He's like, he's very much in the mindset. Not only should we go to Mars, we should be there today. Oh, really? Um, he, he makes an impassioned argument. Well, Sam Chris hates that guy. <laughs> uh, he says that, uh, this brings us back to what we mentioned earlier. He says that Zubrin's case for Mars is basically an analog for Columbus pillaging the Americas, uh, and that, that, you know, going to Mars will lead to, quote, the spread of irrationalism, the banalization of popular culture, the loss of willingness by individuals to take risks, to fend for themselves, and to think for themselves. So, okay. I, I don't know if I agree with yeah, all that. Yeah, I don't know if I do either. I also think, like, um, like many... Uh, kind of quasi-Marxist critics, mm-hmm. this argument ends up getting lost a lot in its sort of flowery, poetic prose and trying yeah. to show how great of a writer this guy actually is rather than focusing on his argumentation. Uh, like this segment here where I'm telling you about what is in this, it took me like, I would say a good hour to pull this out of the, the morass of his language. But also I would imagine he would say, well, this, this is postmodern argumentation, man. Like it's a manifesto in the same way that the cyborg manifesto. Was totally. Manifesto. Donna Haraway is exactly in the same camp. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, he says the journey to any frontier is going to, result in the deaths of millions. But we convince ourselves that Mars is okay, right? Because Mars is lifeless. Nobody can die on Mars, right? Uh, and he brings us back around again to the Columbus thing. And he says, while feudalism was dying in Europe, the conquering of the Americas kept the ruling class in power by shipping vast quantities of precious metals back to them. So... This is basically an anti-capitalist argument against going into space because Earth is running out of both physical space for human beings and the minerals of value for us to exploit. He even goes so far as to say that if we end up going to Mars, it could lead to slavery again. Ooh. Yeah. So he comes down hard on this. (laughs) Now, there's uh, a... Similar argument, uh, but I would say less strident argument <laughs> made by Paul Dickens in a 2010 uh, article that he wrote for Monthly Review, which is an independent socialist magazine. And Dickens basically says, look, the hum- humanization of the cosmos is primarily about benefiting the powerful, namely economic and military institutions. And it will keep happening as we continue to colonize the cosmos. So he says we need to come up with some kind of alternative forms of this. So he's not like necessarily against going into space. What he's against is doing it for uh, the gain of the upper class, essentially. Uh, and he says, yeah, we look at, uh, at going into outer space as being a symbol of modernization. It's progress. It brings social unity, right? Like he actually points out, he says, one of the most lauded benefits of space exploration is teleworking. That huh. we wouldn't have teleworking technology uh, if it wasn't for the space race. Well, then I guess it was all worth it. Cause I, do I don't know, man. <laughs> Tell, we, we both telework, but man alive is it it seems like we haven't gotten that technology nailed down yet huh <laughs> yeah the technology is a little <laughs> iffy um 
Yeah, and to say nothing of the weirdness of uh, of trying to work from home around yeah. all the distractions. Right. So then he also mentions, hey, look at this big boom in space tourism. Now, keep in mind, this is in 2010. This is six years ago. So he's already talking about Richard Branson getting a, you know, uh, trying to create like the uh, the space tourism industry, charging mm-hmm. people exorbitant prices so that they can yeah, fly up into lower, mm-hmm. yeah, lower orbit. Uh, he also mentioned something that I had never heard of before called the Space Renaissance Initiative, which is apparently an international group of over 70 private organizations that promote space exploration. And they have their own manifesto. And this manifesto is to help the economy because there's too many people on Earth that are making too many demands on Earth's resources. So they sort of see themselves the same way as like the wealthy philanthropists who funded exploration to the New World, right? The people who helped Columbus out. Okay. They're not saying there are too many people. Let's throw some people into outer space. No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not not that far. Not yet. We're not going to put them out the airlock. Uh, but he says, look, that's a weird argument, right? Because instead of finding a solution to our problems, you're just basically jettisoning them away, right? Yeah. Like, oh, we'll just push push them off. So another argument by philanthropists like this is something like, uh, we'll find cheap supplies for labor or raw materials up there, right? So that's going to benefit the economy as well. Uh, his evidence that he showed in 2010 for the, quote, global space economy was that it had increased 40% between 2004 and 2009. Uh, now, you hear people often decrying, like, that NASA is not getting enough funding, but he's talking about everything from commercial satellites to military hardware, space tourism, and launch services. And that government budgets actually rose in 2009 up to $261 billion to promote space exploration. And at the end, he mentions the growth of SpaceX under Elon Musk, which we kind of talked about at the beginning, right? As mm-hmm. that's, that's currently our, our kind of like, quote, perfect plan for going to space as we're enamored with, uh, l- launching and landing these rockets that SpaceX is working on. So all of this raises a question that I would, I would pitch to you, the audience. Who owns outer space? And, what about the collisions between all that stuff that we have in outer space? Who's responsible for that? With all the space junk that's floating oh, around yeah. up there, like, there's a lot of like, it. who, who takes responsibility when those crash into each other? Uh, he even argues, you know, uh, what could we do with the money there that we're spending up in space here on Earth? Could we end poverty with all of those billions of dollars that we're spending on going to space? Mm, I'm, I might. Gut answer is no. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would say no as well. I imagine that it's a, a much more pervasive, mm-hmm. wicked problem than that. Yeah. Yeah, there is a tendency to sort of, when you're talking about these vast sums of money, to sort of throw them down hallways and say, oh, throw this money down the hallway of poverty. You got it. You got it uh, solved. Throw this money down the hallway of uh, of overpopulation. You've got it solved. And it just it never works out that way. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so, so there you have it. A lot of anti-space arguments. Uh, some arguments for that we've mentioned to yeah. place everything in balance, but for the most part, focusing on uh, on the the voices that are saying eh, this is maybe not worth uh, the amount of money we're spending. Maybe the benefits here aren't really worth chasing after. Certainly, with not with not with this level of money. Yeah. Um, yeah but you know, economic arguments, religious arguments, political arguments. Mm-hmm. So there's something to it there. 
I just don't know where I fall anymore, Robert. I don't know. I mean, I want us to go to space. I love, I love those ideas as like, as, as everybody does, right? Like, like I said, like I was a little kid sitting there watching Kristen McCulloch go up and I was supposed to be proud of one of my, uh, 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 local New Hampshireites flying into space. Uh, and that had this tragic ending, but, um, geez, I don't know. I mean, when you, when you present all these other arguments of what we could do with that money, who it's benefiting, I don't know where I fall anymore. Yeah, I find the arguments, the arguments about ways we could use the money to better benefit people here on earth and better address sustainability problems here on earth. I find those to be pretty compelling. At the same time, I, and this may, this may actually spill more into almost a kind of religious or, um, or just, just fear-based decision-making process. But uh, there are plenty of times where I'll be, I'll be outside, like, playing with my son and I'll and this happens way too often I'll look up in the sky yeah. and I'll imagine uh something burning through it oh, you know, yeah, something yeah. coming down yeah and it's kind of like a scenario where uh, a family waits to the last minute to pack and move out of the apartment that they're having mm-hmm. to vacate mm-hmm. And it's like, well, why didn't you pack up ahead of time? Why didn't you prepare? You knew this was coming. Yeah. And you didn't prepare. And now it's coming down. So I, I keep coming back to our planet's uh, ability to, to shield itself yeah. from near-Earth objects, to shield our culture and our people and our species from a mass extinction. And I just, I always come back to that and think that, that is worth the effort. Like that should be a major line item on, on every, uh, on every politician's desk. Yeah. But yeah. So, so maybe, maybe here's the compromise. We, uh, we put all that money rather into space exploration. We're going to build, uh, like a giant force field that envelops the entire planet Earth. Sure. If we can figure out how to make fun. <laughs> um, but that's the thing. How are you going to, you're going to, I mean, I'm be, I'm being facetious. No, no, obviously. but but I, yeah. I like the point. It does come back to the idea that even even my view here, yeah. uh, my sort of go to argument for space exploration is still more about Earth. It's still more about right. safeguarding what we have here rather than exploring all of these you know fascinating things about say the Jovian moons. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Yeah. There's a lot of good arguments on both sides, and you know what, listeners, we would love to hear from you. I imagine. At this point, there's a lot of you out there that are probably already halfway through writing us a message, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr or through email. Uh, you can find us on all of our social platforms, including Instagram now, at Blow the Mind. Uh, that's our handle there. And don't forget, hey, we're on StuffToBlowYourMind.com, too. That's where we've got everything from podcasts to videos to articles, all the stuff that Robert, Joe, and I are generating every week. And if you want to send us an email, the address, as always, is Blow the Mind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.